Global Business News 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. From Bloomberg World Headquarters, I'm Charlie Pellet. We have got 13 minutes to go ahead of the close. The Dow, the S&P, NASDAQ at or near their best level of the day. Stocks rising the most in a week. Trading is light. Treasuries are declining. Amid growing speculation, the Trump administration is gaining momentum in its, in its efforts to reform the tax code. Here's where we stand. The Dow now up 208 points, up by 1%. S&P 500 index up 26, up 1.1%. NASDAQ up 89, a gain there of 1.4%. The 10-year down 10.30 seconds, yield 2.22%. Gold is down 6.30, the ounce down 5 tenths of 1%. And West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil up 6 tenths of 1% to $47.64 a barrel. Brent 5191 up five tenths of one percent. I'm Charlie Pellet. That's a Bloomberg Business Flash. All right, Charlie. Thank you so much. Charlie Pellet. It is time for the Bloomberg ETF report brought to you by BlackRock. Worried about market volatility? Minimum volatility strategies may be able to help. To learn more, do visit blackrock.com slash factors prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC. Here with the Bloomberg ETF report, Bloomberg's Julie Hyman. I'm here with Eric Balchunas, who covers ETFs for Bloomberg Intelligence. And Eric, uh, the ETF business is dominated by just a handful of giant players. And recently it's turned into what's really a two-horse race. Who are these two players and just how dominant are they? Right. The two players are Vanguard and BlackRock. Um, In the ETF space, they are the two biggest issuers. But then you go out further and you look at mutual funds and ETFs together, and they're also the two biggest issuers. And they're taking in almost all of the money, basically. The implications are this. Look, they're going to keep fighting each other on costs. So people are going to get their cheap funds, and they're going to invest in all asset classes. That's good. The question people have sometimes is, are they going to be good at corporate governance? And they do have teams. They look into that. But it's certainly something to watch when you have two companies becoming so dominant in any industry. But right now, um, it doesn't seem like in an investor's mind. I'm Julie Hyman with the Bloomberg ETF Report. This is Bloomberg Markets with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. 50 ways to leave your lover. You just slip out the back, Jack. Well, what we're talking about really is exiting from quantitative easing. Uh, we want to talk a little bit about that. Consequences, intended or unintended, as global central banks exit QE. Paul Sheard is chief economist at S&P Global, uh, based in New York and with us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Nice to have you here with us. Nice to be here, Carol. When you look at, finally, uh, the expectation of unwinding um, and maybe the pace uh, what are the interesting aspects of it that you think investors need to take note of? Well, in some sense, what the, the, the Fed in particular, and of course, this is the first cab to leave the rank here, probably uh, starting in September. Probably, hopefully, maybe, we'll uh, wait and see. <laughs> high probability. I think it will probably happen because uh, it's, yeah, it's one of the most well-telegraphed moves in uh, in monetary history is, you know, the Fed's intention is to make this as, uninterest, as uninteresting and as non-dramatic as possible That's for investors. That's been their goal all along. Mm-hmm. But from a more technical point of view, uh, you know, the whole idea of QE is that it sort of pushes the yield curve down. It suppresses the so-called term premium. So the unwinding of QE should lead to upward pressure on interest rates. So, you know, trying to keep track of, uh, you know, how the interest rate hikes of the Fed feeding into a rise in interest rates while this balance sheet unwind is going on at the same time. Perspective, too, though. Um, We know the Fed doesn't 
I mean, there's a reluctance that they don't want to see monetary conditions tighten too much that starts to kind of scare investors, scare corporations. At the same time, any moves, they could do a lot of moves, and it still would be low on a historical basis. So I, I don't know. How does the Fed kind of reconcile those two ideas? Yeah, they're, they're trying to find a fine line there because uh, you're right. Uh, the whole point of monetary policy is to try to you know, ease monetary conditions and then when that's successful, tighten monetary conditions. Right. And yeah, we, we kind of have forgotten that because we haven't seen it in a while. Correct, correct. And ultimately what they want, of course, is the economy at full employment. Well, we're sort of getting closer to that in the U.S. Right. And low stable inflation, call it 2% or so. That should, you know, in the Fed's mind, lead to, you know, long-term interest rates of more like, you know, 4%, 4.5%. They're 22 at the moment. So the Fed does want interest rates to go up because that would be consistent with them doing their job and getting the economy in the right spot. On the other hand, if those interest rates go up too quickly, that tightens financial conditions and then uh, causes headwinds to the recovery. Are we so it's, that, it's a balancing act. Are we that fragile still? No, I don't think the U.S. is that fragile. And the U.S., I think, uh, is in pretty good shape. And I think history will probably record that at least after the financial crisis, the Fed has played a pretty good hand. So, Paul, is it just more a case of, as you said, you know, in September in terms of QE, um, you know, the Fed is <laughs> is very good at telegraphing what they want to do. By the time it finally happens, we're all like, finally, it's over, right? Because <laughs> it it, we've been spoon-fed it, if you will. Well, um, but at the same time, um, I lost my train of thought now. Uh, what was I going to say? Easy to do with monetary policy. Well, it is. I mean, it's just so slow moving. Is it more case of because we've gotten so accustomed to this easy monetary policy, do you think that there is some discussion within the Fed that says we're okay to go and start maybe on a trajectory of raising rates and several times one after another, but because investors, because the environment has gotten so used to – uh, low rate, no movement at all, we just can't. Mm. Is it more a case of that, or is it still the Fed a little worried about things aren't quite perfect? Well, I think what, you know, the Fed is, uh, you know, is in some sense, it's in, it's been in unconventional territory for a long time, and it's still going to be in that unconventional territory with the unwind of the balance sheet, which let's not forget is four and a half trillion dollars. If there'd been no QE, it would have been more like a trillion dollars, let's right. say. Um, but, uh, by the same token, uh, they're playing with a, with a sort of a conventional handbook as well. They think that the usual, the normal rules of economics and monetary policy transmission sort of still work, but they're not quite sure. So, uh, because if they did, they probably would have started raising oh. rates a long time ago. Yeah, I mean, I mean look at the unemployment year... rate, 4.3% now, and that's actually lower than what the Fed is saying they expect full employment uh, to be in the longer run. So, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're clearly uh, cognizant of the fact that this is not uh, an ordinary period in, in history, but by the same token, you know, four rate hikes now, balance sheet unwind coming, they're much further advanced along this path than, say, the ECB or the Bank of Japan or the Bank of England, for that matter. Do we get back to uh, a normal cycle? Um, well, you know, everyone talks about the new normal, uh, the I new know, neutral, etc. But, but I, I think the world has changed. Um, you know, if we used a fancy word, it would be hysteresis, which basically means you have a big shock, and that shock has permanent effects on the, on the economy. There's a little bit of that going on. Right. But, you know, um, it's, it's not just monetary policy. We've got a lot of stuff going on in the world. Um, not even figured about geopolitics. I'm thinking of the fourth industrial revolution. Correct. The information revolution. So the structure of the economy is changing all the time as well. Um, so, again, that sort of leaves the, the policymakers scratching their heads a little bit. Will the normal recipe work in the same way as in the past? How will we know whether or not we've got to kind of rewrite the rule books? 
in some sense, I mean, the, the markets and the economy, to a certain extent, will will give the signals to the Fed. So, um, you know, long-term interest rates still quite low. Mm-hmm. The Fed would expect them to go up. But in some sense, if they don't go up that much, but the economy, you know, gets to full employment, ticks along with, you know, close to 2% inflation, well, you know, they'll learn to live with that. Right. Do you think um, it is technology and advancements that really have held down inflation? Inflation. Inflation. I think. I, I think. I'm just making up the words as right. we go here. I, I think with you know, anytime you see something which is a really unusual phenomenon, it, it's usually not just one cause, but maybe two or three different yeah, things. But this is that a big cause, up. a big change in terms of how we do things. And and I think about you know, we were just we have these discussions all the time when anybody goes shopping that you know you can quickly mm. go online and you can find the best price. You couldn't do that easily 10 years ago, maybe. No, definitely. So I think the two big trends are, you know, I'm fond of saying that the financial crisis and the Great Recession are casting a long shadow. So there's yeah. still some residual effects of that. And, and again, part of it is in the minds of people that, that there were some pretty big shocks thrown at the economy. It takes a while for that to kind of wear off. But then what's been going on in parallel is exactly that information revolution. And you have to look in your own hand uh, to see, uh, you know, how, how much that has actually changed the way that we, we go about our business. Which makes it tricky for the global central bankers, that's for sure. Paul Sheard, thank you so much. Great. Enjoy that conversation. Great. Pleasure, Carol. Paul Sheard, he's chief economist at S&P Global in our Bloomberg 1130 studio right here in New York City. It is Tuesday. It is global. uh, It is Bloomberg markets, I should say. Sometimes we're global markets, too. Always global markets. I'm Carol Messer, and this is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.